was tried for no crime of his own. Found guilty at the hands of his foes. He was led up the mountain to be hung on a tree, a death that he welcomed so gracefully. His body on display for the public to see, and what held him there was his love for humanity. With one last breath, it is finished, could be heard. His lifeless body removed and he was laid upon the stone. The tomb was sealed and all hope seemed lost, seemingly defeated at the cross. But on the third day, the light of life shone. It pierced through the darkness. Death's power was gone. The stone rolled away and the creator burst forth with the light of new day. He showed us what his name means, that he is mighty to save. Indeed, Jesus came and conquered the grave. Amen. That was good, wasn't it? Our very own media team put that together. How about that? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Happy Easter to all of you. He is risen. Amen. That sounds good. You know, uh, how many of you could use a little bit of good news this evening? I feel like we all could use a little bit of good news. It seems like everywhere you turn and everywhere you look, our world is filled with bad news, more and more and more bad news. Well, tonight, I have the greatest news in the world to share with you, and that is that our Savior lives. He's risen, he's on the throne, and he's made his power available to each and every one of you. Um, I want to share a, a little story. It's a story about a man and his wife and his cranky mother-in-law. They went on vacation together in the Holy Land. While they were there, the mother-in-law passed away, sadly. The undertaker told him, I'll, I'll ship her to you for 5,000 bucks, or you can bury her here in the Holy Land for just $150. The man thought about it for a minute, and then he told the undertaker he would just have her shipped home. The undertaker said, are you sure? I mean, why? Why would you spend $5,000 to have her shipped all the way back to the States when it would be wonderful to be buried here for only $150? And the man responded, you know, a man died here about 2,000 years ago. He was buried here, and three days later, he rose from the dead. I just can't take that chance. <laughs> but it is the truth. 2,000 years ago, something happened that changed the course of human history. It literally is an event so significant that time itself is divided by things that either happened before this event or after this event. And of course, I'm talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we're all here, and that's what we're celebrating today. Now, this, this is a special Easter for our church. And for those of you who are visiting or joining us for the first time, this is a unique Easter for our church. I want to acknowledge that. Um, my dad has been the, the pastor of this church for the last 38 years. He was the founding pastor and the first member of this church. And earlier this year, uh, the Lord took him home. And so I'm actually, I chose to preach from my dad's Bible tonight. Give me a little bit of extra anointing. 
It's the old King James, and I love it. It's got his notes and everything in here. But as I was reading and studying the text, one that's so familiar to me, I've read it hundreds of times over the years. But I can honestly tell you that I was in my office and I was preparing this message and I was in tears. It was like the story hit me in a different place and it was like I was reading it for the first time. I felt myself overcome with with all these different emotions. In equal parts, I felt sorrow, grief, loss, anger, anger over what sin does and what sin causes and what sin brings. But I also felt joy. I felt a note of hope. And ultimately, I felt triumph. And, and, and when all of those things came together, they coalesced into this, this thing in my chest that I can only describe as a roar. I felt like the Lord wants to roar tonight and declare to all of us that the grave doesn't get the last word. Death doesn't get the final word. Jesus does because he conquered the grave. Amen. Amen. So with that, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into our study together. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you for your life. We invite you here into these moments. Would you speak to us tonight? Would you join us through the work and the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you move up and down each and every row? Would you knock on each and every heart? And would you open our eyes to behold the beauty of our risen Savior? And we pray and ask all of these things together in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, amen. Now, we all know where our story is headed. It's headed to an empty grave. But we can't forget that the story begins in a graveyard. So the first point, don't get discouraged, the first point in my message for you this evening is hope lost. Hope lost. Let's pick up our story in Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. It says, when the evening had come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher, and then he departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Now, we take it for granted in the story that Jesus was buried in a tomb. But in those days, that wasn't a given. You see, they didn't bury poor people in fancy rich guys' tombs, nor did they bury criminals, which is what Rome thought Jesus was. They would take criminals down from the cross, and they would throw them on the rubbish heap, and then their bodies would be burned. But here we find Jesus being buried in the tomb of a rich man. Now, this was significant because it helped to fulfill an ancient prophecy that had been written by Isaiah the prophet some 500 years earlier about how Jesus would die, the Messiah. It says this in Isaiah 53, 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. So Jesus was crucified between two thieves. And with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And the man who made all of this possible, who helped fulfill this prophecy, was this guy named Joseph of Arimathea. Now, who was he? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about him, but we can piece together some of the clues, a sketch of who he was. 
We know that he was rich. And the other thing we know is that he was a prominent member of this governing council, this religious council known as the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin, that was the very group that condemned Jesus to die on the cross. The other thing the Bible tells us about Joseph is that he was a secret disciple. John tells us that when the Sanhedrin voted to kill Jesus, that that Joseph spoke up in opposition. But when they pressed on him and they came down on him and his peers pushed on him, he, he backed up and he shut up because he was afraid of losing his position and losing his status. So so what happened? Because here we are just three days later, and Joseph is boldly walking up to Pilate, the most powerful man in that part of the ancient world, and he's begging for the body of Jesus. He's risking not only his career now, but also his very life. Notice, too, how in our text, he's described as a disciple. The secret is out. The secret is gone. He no longer cares about what people think. And so the question I ask you is, what changed Joseph of Arimathea? And I have a very simple answer for you. The cross. When he experienced the power and the love of God on full display before him in the cross, it changed his heart so radically that he was never the same. And the cross will do that same thing with us. And and the thing I love about Joseph, and the reason I bring him up now is because I think his story is a great reminder to all of us that it's never too late for you to start to become who you wish you had always been. He may have started out as a coward, but it's not his cowardice that ultimately came to define him. It was his courage. And that is the, the story that changes because of the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And your story can change tonight as well. Moving on, in verse 62, we read that now the next day, the following day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that the deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days, I'm going to rise again. So command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, he's risen from the dead. So the last error will be worse than the first. So Pilate said unto them, you have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. All right, now Jesus' own disciples, we know, had no concept, nor were they expecting a resurrection. (laughs) But I find it noteworthy that the Pharisees were aware of Jesus' predictions about rising from the dead, and, and so they wanted to make sure that nothing would happen, and so they did two additional things. In, in addition to the massive stone that Joseph had rolled in front of the tomb, they asked for two additional measures to make sure nobody could get in. They asked for it to be sealed, and they asked for a guard. Let's talk about each of those things. The seal consisted of a wax impression of the Roman imperial stamp. It would have been hung over the width of the stone and hung down, and it represented the power and the authority of Rome. Nobody could break that seal without incurring the wrath of the entire Roman army, and anyone who tried would pay for that crime with their very life. 
But in addition to the seal, there was also a guard of soldiers. Now, a guard, it represented a squadron of 16 soldiers. Each member of this squadron would have been responsible for six square feet of space. The guard members, while they were on duty, they couldn't sit down, they couldn't rest, they couldn't eat, they couldn't lean against anything, and they certainly couldn't fall asleep. If a guard happened to fall asleep while on the job, he wasn't just fired, but he was beaten to death by the fellow soldiers, and then he was burned alive. After he was beaten to death, is that really possible? Did I just say that? I mean, that's really bad when you get burned alive after you've been beaten to death, but that's what they would do. The point is, all these measures, I mean, the stone, the seal, and the guard, were supposed to make sure that Jesus stayed buried. But you can't keep a good man down. (laughs) The truth of the matter is, they could have put a mountain in front of that tomb, and they could have stationed every Roman soldier in the entire army outside of it, and it wouldn't have mattered. Nothing in heaven, on earth, or even in hell was going to keep Jesus from conquering the grave, and that's what we're moving into now. Amen? Verse 1. At the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. So they came to see the sepulcher, to see the tomb. And by the way, I just want to pause here to give it up for the girls, because they're the only ones we find early on the morning of the third day, before the sun is up, making their way to the tomb. They were the last ones there at the cross. They were the only ones there at the tomb with Joseph as the stone was rolled in front. And they're the first ones at the tomb the following day. Girls rule. If you're sitting next to a girl, just tell them, you rule. Come on, help me out. As they made their way to the tomb, they would have had to pass through a specific gate. They would have had to pass through the Geneth Gate. And it would have led them out the city wall, and it would have led them to the garden tomb. But on their way, they would have passed Golgotha. That's the very spot, of course, where Three days earlier, Jesus had hung on the cross and had been crucified. There was no way around it. So you can imagine what kinds of emotions that would have stirred up within their hearts. They would have been walking with grief in their eyes, heaviness in their hearts. They had come, according to Mark's gospel, to embalm the body of Jesus. They carried spices in their arms, aromatic spices. Matthew tells us it was early. They probably couldn't sleep. If you've ever experienced the various stages of grief, you know that one of the things that happens to you is you find it difficult to sleep. Some of you know about this. You've lost loved ones. It wasn't just me or our church, but many of you have lost loved ones in the last year or even dear friends, and maybe you've been to their grave to pay your respects, to leave flowers, to weep for them. And there is this thing inside of us that breaks when we see and experience death. We feel like we've been robbed of this person that we love. And you know what? That is very much the case. The Bible says that death is a thief and that it's a robber. But guess what? That's why Jesus came. He came to steal back life from the grave, which is exactly what these women were about to experience. Verse 2 goes on to say, And behold, there was a great earthquake, 
For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came, and he rolled back the stone from the door, and he sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment was white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake, and they became as dead men. All right, if the first point was hope is lost at the sight of the grave, then the second point in this message is hope is rising. The earth shakes. Now, this is the second earthquake that Jerusalem experienced in the past three days. The first one occurred at the very moment when Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. At that exact moment, the Bible tells us that the earth began to shake and to quake. I believe the epicenter of that earthquake was the cross of Jesus Christ. And by the way, when he cried that out, as the earth shook, the Bible says that great rocks split open. At the same moment, the veil in the temple that was 30 feet wide and 60 feet high and several inches thick, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. And then a third supernatural thing occurred as well. The Bible tells us that many people broke out of their graves and were seen walking around the city. That would have been creepy, crazy, kind of cool. Like, whoa, there's Joe. Joe didn't. Oh, my gosh. It was like a preview of coming attractions. You know how it is around this time of year, you get those first blossoms and those first buds on a new tree or, or, or first blossoms on a plant or, or on, a, uh, on a bush. And they're a sign of things to come. And so it was with these resurrections as many righteous men and women were seen walking around the city. Well, this time, as the ground shakes again, this angel is seen coming down from heaven, and he rolls back the massive stone. Now, I love this part of the story, because we know that that stone would have been about six feet in height, and it would have weighed upwards of two tons. It would have required several strong men working together just to get it to move. But here, one angel comes down from heaven, and he just you know, takes his finger and bing, flips the thing out of the way. And then to make his point, he, he sits down on it. And I, I don't know if that was part of the script, or he, he kind of detoured from the script. And he just sat on it because he thought that would be pretty cool. I tend to think that's what happens. But let's keep in mind, the angel didn't roll the stone away to let Jesus out. You've, you know this. He rolled the stone away so that the women could go in and see that Jesus had, in fact, risen. But what about us? For us, I feel like that stone represents all the barriers to belief in our lives. There are things trying to keep you from Jesus. And for you, it might be a stone of offense. They hurt you. And you can't let go of that. And it's a stone in your heart that's keeping you from Jesus. It might be a stone of unforgiveness or a stone of unbelief. For some of you, it might be a stone of fear or a stone of doubt. Whatever that stone is, what I came here to tell you tonight is that God wants to roll away the stone and resurrect all of the dead things in your heart. Now, when the Roman soldiers felt the earth shaking beneath their feet and they saw the angel who, by the way, the Bible tells us his appearance was like lightning and his clothing were as, as white as snow. So, I mean, this was obviously a strong 
mighty, supernatural being. And when the soldiers saw the angels, it says they shook. By the way, when it says they shook, uh, Matthew uses the exact same word that he used for earthquake earlier in the text. So they shook like the earth shook. And they all fell to the ground as dead men. So the earth was shaking, the soldiers were shaking, and then they fell over. And then the angel said a couple of things to the women in verses 5 through 7. Let's go ahead and read those together. It says, the angel answered and said unto the women, don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where the Lord lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goes before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Lo, I have told you. The angel makes essentially four statements to these women that I'd like to, to run through with you. The first thing he tells them is, I know what you're seeking, Jesus, who was crucified. The crucifixion of Jesus, as Kenny mentioned a moment ago, it's a historical fact. It's not something that's up for debate. And so we ask the question, why did Jesus die? And for the answer to that question, you have to look at the rest of Scripture. And it explains to us that he didn't die for his own sins, but Jesus came to die for the sins of humanity. He came to die for you and for me. His death it was substitutionary. It's been put like this. He lived the perfect life that we could never live and then died the death that we deserve so that God could then begin to treat us as though we lived his life and we are gifted his righteousness. I love the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And I'd love it if we could read this verse together out loud. He who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. It's a glorious and beautiful exchange wherein we are gifted Jesus' righteousness and we give him our guilt and our shame and our rags and we get his riches. Jesus was crucified for you. And what you need to know is if you were the only person on this planet, he would have died just for you. But he didn't stay dead. The second thing that the angel told these women was, he is risen. Amen. That feels good. Let's say that together out loud. One, two, three. He is risen. You see, he was crucified, past tense, but he is risen, present tense. We don't worship a dead savior. He's alive. And what that means is we have a living hope. And every single thing about Christianity rises or falls with this simple fact. You see, we aren't here to venerate a dead Messiah or to remember his teachings and his good life. We aren't here to celebrate just a good moral man who showed us how we can live better lives. I mean, if that's all that Christianity has to offer, I'm afraid it's really powerless. Paul the Apostle pointed this out in his letter to the Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 through 20. Let's, let's read this together. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. 
then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead and the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I mean, if, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul's exhortation to us would be, hey, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's all go out and party. But he goes on to say, Christ has indeed raised from the dead, and he's the first fruits. That means he was the forerunner. He went first, but we all get to follow in the path that he trailblazed. Now, that sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. You see, all the other world religions are built on the theoretical postulates of their founder or their guru or their teacher. And you can travel the world and visit the tombs of all of the founders of other world religions. You can visit the temple where the Buddha is buried. You can visit the grave of Confucius in China. You can visit Muhammad's tomb in Saudi Arabia. You can visit the tomb of Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism in Illinois. But when you go to the garden tomb, all you'll find is an empty sepulcher and a plaque hanging on the wall that says exactly what that angel said. He is not here. He is risen just as he said, which leads us to the next invitation that this angel gave. He said to these women, come and see. Now, what was he inviting them to see? I mean, there wasn't really much there. And that's exactly the point. He wanted them to see for themselves that the tomb was empty. And all that was left was the grave clothes that Jesus had been wrapped in. He didn't want the women taking his word for it. He wanted them to examine the evidence for themselves and to see for themselves that Jesus had indeed risen. And so I can imagine the women standing there. The angel comes down. The earth has shaken. The soldiers have all fallen. And there's the angel saying, come on, ladies, check it out for yourselves. And they begin to step over these soldiers, making their way to the tomb. And I, in my crazy imagination, I wonder if one of them accidentally happened to kick one of the soldiers <laughs> on their way to the empty tomb that day. You never know. But the invitation to the women is the same invitation that gets extended to each and every one of us. Come and see. The gospel begins with the word come. <clears throat> Religion says go. Go and clean yourself up. Clean up your act. Put your life together. And then you'll be accepted. But Jesus says come. Come with your rags. Come with your hurts. Come with your hang-ups. Come with your pain. Come with your past. Come with your struggles and your sorrows. Come just as you are. Just come and see. Now, the word translated see here is the Greek word, I do, I do. And it literally means not just to see with the physical eyes, but to perceive and to understand with one's heart. The invitation is quite literally to see the difference that Jesus can make. See how much he loves you. See the power that he's made available to you. Don't just take my word for it. Don't take the angel's word for it. See for yourself. And then the fourth word from the angel is go. Now go and tell the others. Go and tell it on a mountain that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
You know, there's just some news that's too good to be kept to oneself. Like when I find a new restaurant that I love, I have to tell everyone about it. When, when I see a movie that captivates me, I'm evangelizing everyone, telling them to go see this movie and all my friends. And, and, and that's how we ought to be with the gospel, right? The gospel is the good news. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. And the good news is that there is a God in heaven who loves sinners, and he sent his son to die on the cross in our place so that if we'll believe in him, put our faith in him, that we won't perish, but that we'll have everlasting life. So this is the, the message that gets implanted in the hearts of these women, and they begin to go to tell others. They were given the incredible privilege of being the first ones to get to share the gospel with the rest of the world. I mean, these women get to be the very first missionaries. Now, let's wrap our story up in verses 8 through 10 as we see hope restored. It says, and they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and they ran to bring the disciples' word. And as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, all hail. And they came, and they held him by the feet, and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers that they go into Galilee, and there they shall see me. So I love this part of the story. It's really honest, isn't it? As they're, they're running, I mean, they've just had this incredible supernatural experience. They're trying to put all of the pieces of the puzzle together. And Matthew is really honest as he tells us they, they run in obedience to the command of the angel, but their heart is filled with this mixture of both joy and fear. They didn't have it all figured out yet, in other words. They were still processing everything that had just happened. So there was this mixture of fear and joy. But then as they're running, Jesus stops them. And they immediately recognize him. And they grab hold of him. And Mary falls at his feet. And it says they worshiped him. By the way, this is where an empty tomb and a risen Savior ought to lead every one of us. It ought to culminate and produce within us a heart of worship. And you say, but I have questions. It's OK. You don't have to have it all figured out. The women didn't have it all figured out. Just go to the feet of Jesus and look up at him and let him heal your heart. Let him be a salve to your wounds. Let him restore your joy. Let him be your light and your life and your salvation. As we close this, this evening, I want you to think with me for a moment about everything that was transformed and changed this particular day. It began, the day did, with tears, but it ends in joy. It began with grief, but it ends in gladness. It began with a crucified Lord, but it ends with a risen Savior. It begins in darkness. It ends in light. It begins with a sepulcher. It ends with a Savior. It begins with death, but it ends with life. You see, this is the reversal of everything that was lost in the Garden of Eden. That's where this whole ship went south. All that was lost there was restored here. It's interesting to note that they're both gardens. 
It was in a garden that the curse was given, and it's in a garden that the curse was defeated, along with the devil and the grave. In the Garden of Eden, you'll recall there were two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And all we have record of is Adam and Eve taking the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And after they bit into that fruit, they tasted its sour effects in their lives. They were driven out of the garden. But here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we get to see in our line of sight another tree, the tree that Jesus climbed on Good Friday, the tree of Calvary on Golgotha. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, but here the angel invites the women to come into the garden and to step into the empty tomb. And it's all a reminder that this is what our God does. He takes graves and he turns them into gardens. Amen. Amen. Let's let's bow our heads and close our eyes. The goal of today is not just that we would read this story and rehearse it or hear about Jesus' resurrection. The goal is that every person in here would experience a resurrection in their own lives. We just read about how the resurrection changed the lives of this group of women 2,000 years ago. But the truth is, Jesus is alive and well, and he's still changing lives today. I'm proof of that. He invites all of us to come to him, to see for ourselves the difference that he can make, and then to go out into a lost world so that others might know him too. There are four things that I know to be true of every person on this planet. We are all born with an inbuilt longing for meaning and purpose. And outside of Jesus, you will never find that purpose. You will search, but your search will lead you down dead ends and into cul-de-sacs. And maybe you've been looking for meaning, and, and you just see everywhere about you, it's just futile, just like Solomon discovered. It's like a chasing after the wind, and you can achieve the American dream, and it still won't scratch the itch or satisfy your soul. And the reason for that is because, quite simply, you were created to know God and to walk in relationship with him. God wants to bring meaning and purpose to your life. The second thing I know to be true of every person on this planet is that we all struggle with feelings of loneliness. And maybe that describes you. You can be in a crowded room like this, surrounded by people, even in your own home, but you can feel all alone inside of your soul. And I think, if anything, what COVID has done and and all of the isolation that we've experienced over the last two years is it's driven home this need that we all share for community, togetherness. And Jesus wants you to know that if he steps into your life, if you'll let him in, you'll never be alone again. He promises to be a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. You don't have to live this life one more day on your own or in your own power. Jesus wants to come into your life. A third thing I know to be true of every person is that we're all born with a fear of death. Death is the the fate that we all share, right? It's been said. The statistics on death are really impressive. One out of every one person dies. And the Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die and then to face judgment. But Jesus came to remove the sting of death so that for a believer, you know what death is like? It's kind of like this. When my kids were young and 
they would fall asleep in one place. Maybe they'd fall asleep on the way home from grandma and grandpa's house. And so they'd fall asleep in the car. And I would carefully pick them up and scoop them into my arms and take them from the car. And I would put them in their own bed. And when they woke up the next morning, they'd be in their bed thinking, how on earth did I get here surrounded by my toys and stuffed animals? I fell asleep in the car. And the Bible compares death for the believer. It's like falling asleep. And you fall asleep down here, and you wake up in the presence of Jesus. Why? Because the sting of death has been removed. You can have your fear of death removed. You can have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then the last thing that Jesus came to deal with, something that I know we all struggle with, is he came to take away our guilt. And we all feel this weight, this guilt, and this shame. And the reason we feel it is because, quite frankly, we're all guilty. We've all sinned. We've all violated God's holy commandments. If you think otherwise, you're just proving the point because you're lying. <laughs> We're all sinners in need of a savior. But Jesus came to remove your guilt. He bore on the cross every sin that you've ever committed. He came to free you from your past, to empower you in your present, and to give you a hope for the future. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. If you want to have purpose and meaning in your life, if you want your guilt and shame removed, if you want that loneliness taken away, if you want to have the fear of death ripped out of your heart and replaced with a peace and a confidence of knowing that you'll spend forever in the presence of Jesus with your loved ones in heaven, then I want to pray with you to receive Jesus into your heart. If that's the desire of your heart, would you just raise your hand up high right now? Thank you, Jesus, for the hands that are going up in this room. Lord Jesus, we thank you. There are others in here, and, and you know the Lord. You've, you've known the Lord for a long time, but you've wandered away from him. You've backslidden. That's the term that we use. And Jesus is calling you back home tonight. He's saying, you're like that prodigal son. You know what it's like to experience the goodness of the Father's house. But you found your way into a far country, and Jesus is saying, are you ready to come home? I want to forgive your sins. I want to robe you in my righteousness and put a ring on your finger and sandals on your feet. I want to throw a party for you and restore to you all that the devil robbed you of. And you know that's you because, man, you're just, you're not happy. There's nothing more... Um, I don't know, discouraged and defeated than a Christian who's trying to run back to the world. And if that's you, you know exactly what that feels like. It's a terrible place to be, and Jesus is calling you back home. If that's you, would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you as well. Praise the name of the Lord. Amen. 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 Well, the, the worship team is going to play a song, and I'm going to invite those of you who just raised your hands to do something bold. Just like Joseph of Arimathea had to come out from the shadows and make a bold proclamation of his belief in Jesus, that he was a disciple. I'm going to call those of you who just raise your hands to stand up wherever you are as the band begins to play and come down here and stand right in the front. You say, but I'll, I'll be embarrassed in front of people. Don't worry about those people. They'll be cheering you on. I promise that. You come on down. Praise the Lord. Come on down right now in the name of Jesus. Just get up and come wherever you are. Those of you who raise your hands, if you want forgiveness of sins, if you want new life, if you want Jesus, if you want your guilt taken away, come on, wherever you are, those of you who raise your hands, come up and join this man right here. Let's worship.
Amen. Let's put our hands together for these. You guys made a big, bold move. Amen. Amen. I'm going to pray. I'm going to lead you guys in a prayer right now. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And just know this, that there is great rejoicing not only here, but up in heaven. The Bible says there's great rejoicing when even one sinner comes to repentance. So all of heaven is erupting in praise for you guys right now. Praise the Lord. It's your spiritual birthday. The Bible says if you're giving your life to Jesus, it's like you're becoming a brand new creation in Christ. The old things are passed away. They're done with, nailed to the cross. All things are made new. So let me just invite you to say this prayer and mean it from the bottom of your heart. And those of you who resonate with what I'm saying, you can just pray it from wherever you're seated, and you can just reaffirm your love for Jesus as well. Say, dear Jesus. Thank you for loving me, for going to the cross, dying in my place for my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life and help me to follow you, Jesus, until I see you face to face. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you guys.